Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I am Elin Fermier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November episode. And now we're going to listen to a very interesting interview that Eva did with Alvaro San Milan, the 6th of October. Enjoy. Hi, dear listeners. It's my absolute pleasure to be sitting here at the AMR studio in person this time with Álvaro Samillán, group leader at the National Center for Biotechnology in Spain, which is part of the Spanish National Research Council. Well, I should say Spanish, not Spanish, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Álvaro, welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. In this very autumn yeah. afternoon that we brought you to Uppsala. <laughs> yeah, a bit rainy now. It's 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 nice for a change because you know Spanish summer has been uh, quite tough. So it's good. It's good to have rain. <laughs> nice. Um, I'm really happy that you were able to make it all the way from Spain to Sweden to be with us yesterday at the Spanish embassy, talking a little bit uh, more on. Uh, outreach level about antibiotic resistance and today here at our center bringing us actually your research in the lab and a little bit more of details on the science that you are doing. I want to start by maybe going a bit further back in time and for you telling us a little bit about your background. So what did you study? What were your beginnings in science? Sure. Well, I'm a veterinary doctor, right? I went to veterinary school. So yeah, but you know, in, in in the school, in veterinary sciences in general, uh, infectious diseases as you can imagine are quite a big, quite a big thing, part of it, right? So um, ever since I studied microbiology in the in the second year, I became really interested in 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 well yeah, microbiology in general, and infectious diseases in particular. So when I finished my degree, I decided to went on and do a PhD in the department for animal health that is called actually where it's like all the people working with microbes are based in the veterinary school in Madrid. So yeah, and I did my PhD there. And uh, well, ever since the start of my PhD, I, I've been working with antimicrobial resistance and mobile genetic elements such as plasmids. Yeah. Mm-hmm, great. So you are interested in learning how these mobile elements have to do something with the evolution of antimicrobial resistance, right? Yeah, well, that's actually the main focus of our group, I guess. During my PhD, we were more interested into the molecular mechanisms, but obviously when you work with bacteria and plasmids, it's impossible not to get into evolution, right? Because at the end, evolutionary biology is a huge part of antimicrobial resistance, how how bacteria adapt. To antibiotics, uh, the evolutionary dynamics, the population dynamics, right? So um, when I finished my PhD, um, I was really interested in, in this field, in this particular field, in the evolution of antimicrobial resistance. So for my postdoc, I went to, to arguably uh, one of the best places in the world to study evolution, that is the Department of Zoology in the University of Oxford. Well, now it has changed the name. Is the Department of Biology, actually. But <laughs> by then it was the Department of Zoology. So I went there to learn about evolutionary biology uh, with Craig McLean. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So in this context, our main interest is basically looking at how these mobile genetic elements that are called plasmids promote the adaptation and the evolution of antimicrobial resistance in bacteria. 
Yes, and uh, well, basically these elements are able to spread horizontally between bacteria, to go from one bacteria to another directly, and they fuel bacterial adaptation and evolution by spreading, uh, well, not only antimicrobial resistant genes, but many genes in bacterial populations. Mm -hmm. So they're very relevant for the overall evolution of strains, be it either in the environment, in uh, animals, or it could be also in humans and in the clinical context, I assume, right? Exactly. Plasmids play a role uh, in bacterial evolution. Uh, Well, they do a myriad of different things. They encode genes for Anything you can think of, basically, can be encoded on a plasmid and spread across bacterial populations. And in that way, they accelerate adaptation, right? Because these genes are shared among bacteria rapidly. But in the frame of antimicrobial resistance, they are particularly relevant because they basically are the main vehicle for the spread of antimicrobial resistant genes across um, bacterial pathogens. So in places such as hospitals, there are many of these plasmids around and they can spread rapidly and confer antimicrobial resistance to different pathogens. And we really need or we really want to understand these processes because hopefully if we know how these processes occur, we could be able to come up with maybe solutions to counteract the revolution or, or, or at least yeah, different approaches or interventions that may alleviate the, the antimicrobial resistance crisis. Mm-hmm. So if we put it in the context of the microbial world and the bacterial world, we have a lot of different bacteria. We always talk, you know, bacteria live in different environments, they have different lifestyles and they do different things. I assume there's also a lot of different kind of plasmids. So how do you go about understanding or researching within this diversity? What is it that you're most interested in? Well, that's, yeah, that's that's a difficult problem, I guess. Obviously, there is um, bacterial diversity is enormous, it's huge. And plasmid diversity is, is, well, there's also quite a lot of different types of plasmids and especially quite a lot of different genes that you can find in plasmids. So basically what we do is, um, since we are mainly interested in the evolution of antimicrobial resistance, we kind of focus on those plasmids that are more relevant as vehicles for antimicrobial resistant genes. So what we try to do is to go to clinical settings such as hospitals and sample, well, patients, but also the environment and look at what type of plasmids are prevalent in which type of bacteria and um, then try to understand how well, all the dynamics on how plasmids spread in the hospital across different strains, how the strains with these plasmids spread between different patients and uh, how all these dynamics can be ideally predicted to try to come up with solutions to hinder this dissemination, right? Oh, in a perfect world where... All the work that you do looking into the dynamics of plasmids in the populations, what kind of solutions do you envision that might come from that work and that data? Well, there are many different levels, right? First, you really need to understand what's out there, right? So, And that's something that people, including ourselves, but many different groups have been working for many, many years. And, and we have kind of a really good picture of, of what's out there, what antimicrobial resistant mechanisms are out there in which plasmids are encoded, which bacteria are carrying the different plasmids, that's quite well characterized. Then there's a different and the next level of trying to understand why 
you find this, right? Why these plasmids are associated to this particular bacteria, why they carry these particular antimicrobial resistant genes. And that's um, still not that well understood. So once you have understood these different factors, ideally you may be able to find a um, solution. For example, if you know what particular plasmid is more prone to disseminate in a certain clinical setting, you may concentrate on trying to develop strategies to counteract the bacteria carrying that plasmid or strategies to counteract the dissemination of that plasmid by inhibiting the conjugation or developing uh, new intervention strategies that target those clones that carry the plasmid or just by monitorizing patients and detecting those patients colonized with that particular strain and, well, maybe putting them in, in, in a different room or doing some different manipulations or interventions that allow to contain the spread of that particular back in the hospital, um, these kind of things. Obviously, the ideal solution would be to find drugs or interventions or combinations of antibiotics that would specifically target the bacteria carrying the antimicrobial resistant determinants that we are more interested in. But um, we are not yet at this point, I would say. Mm -hmm. What do you think is missing? We, I think we really need to understand better what's going on. One line of work that we follow and that I think is promising is if we really understand how plasmids affect bacterial physiology, and, and we know they do, right? When a bacterium acquires a new plasmid, we've seen that this changes the transcriptional profile of the chromosome, it changes the fitness of the bacterium, it changes many different things. So if we were able to find one of these changes which we could target, for example, if the plasmid is producing certain stress in the bacterium and when all of the sudden a given protein becomes essential and it wasn't essential before, if we have a drug that targets that protein, now you're specifically targeting only the bacteria that are carrying that particular plasmid. Mm -hmm. And you can selectively inhibit or counteract the growth of this particular bacteria and therefore you can counteract somehow the evolution of antimicrobial resistance in that in that particular population. Mm -hmm. Or another example, we've also seen that by acquiring um, a plasmid, sometimes bacteria become more susceptible to giving antibiotics. Mm -hmm. For example, if this is antimicrobial resistant plasmid, the bacteria will become resistant to different antibiotics because the plasmid is encoding the mechanism for resistance to those antibiotics. But we've seen with different plasmids and different strains that sometimes, as a side effect of acquiring the plasmid, the bacterium becomes more susceptible to a different antibiotic, mm -hmm. right? Collateral sensitivity. Yeah. That's, we have talked about it before okay. in, the, in the podcast a couple of times, yes. So, yeah, so that's what is known as collateral sensitivity, right? So we found there is plasmid-associated collateral sensitivity. So that's promising, right? So if you find that pattern, understand the pattern, and find which molecules you could use, you could potentially target only plasmid-carrying bacterium because they will become more susceptible to given antibiotics. So those, those are some of the lines that we follow. But at the end of the day, you really need to understand what's going on. I think that's what we have been missing in order to develop better and more robust, evolutionary robust strategies. You really need to understand how plasmids are affecting the bacterial physiology, how they evolve with the bacteria. And, and knowing all those different factors, you may be able to find some Achilles heel or, mm -hmm. you know, some, some new 
target that could be exploitable in order to develop uh, the new intervention strategy. Yeah, and I think that's that's the beauty also of basic research, right? Like you really need to have that basic understanding in order to find the next step on something. So not everything can be applied science with a very clear, direct application to the clinics, for example, but introducing this more basic science that is actually based on real-life scenarios, like you were talking about uh, clinical strains or working with what's coming on directly from the patients and the colonization and maybe even the different infections, but really understanding what is happening biologically in there to find something in the next step. No, absolutely. I, I, I strongly believe that we, I mean, this basic science, this basic questions are key to pave the way towards developing new applications, right? And, and in this case, that's kind of what we um, try to learn in the lab, like these basic genetic effects, physiological effects that plasmids produce in different bacteria and how these associations evolve and so on. And then from there, try to, yeah, eventually and hopefully be able to develop new strategies. But yes, I, I, I really believe that you, you need that knowledge. You need to understand that, right? And if we talk about your work and your research area, and you're working a lot with basic microbiology, evolution, what kind of collaborations, what kind of team do you need or are you building in order to answer these questions? Yeah, that's definitely key. Um, so obviously you need on one hand, since we work with um, clinical samples and, and bacteria isolated from hospitals, you need the clinical microbiologist, right, to collaborate with, to get the samples and to, uh, well, basically to understand what's the epidemiology and what's going on in the hospitals, right? But then at the same time, if you want to understand these processes from a broader perspective, you need much more than that, right? You can do your experiments, but, but if, if you really want to extrapolate your results, it's really useful if, if you collaborate with different fields and different scientists. And in particular, we collaborate quite a lot with people doing some modeling, right? Like mathematicians mostly that, that model the population biology of bacteria and the population biology of the plasmids in the bacterial communities. And I have a long-standing collaboration with this scientist, in particular the scientist from Mexico, Rafael Peña Miller, that has been extremely fruitful. Um, and uh, it's not always easy, right, when you, you collaborate with people, because sometimes it seems that you're not really, you don't use the same terms. You, you It seems that you're speaking different languages sometimes, <laughs> right? But if, if you got a, a, a good connection with scientists from different fields, such as is the case, it can be extremely, extremely fruitful and extremely interesting. And uh, yeah, so we collaborate with people working on models, also in epidemiological models, and, and then with people doing more hardcore molecular biology methods that help you to, well, to use other techniques and approaches. And then obviously in our group, we do a lot of bioinformatics, right? Because at the end of the day, since, well, if you study evolution now, really you study, you have to sequence a lot of DNA and sequence a lot of bacterial genomes and look at how those genomes evolve over time. And uh, to do that, you generate a lot of data, right? Because sequencing um, or using transcriptomics or all these high throughput methods, you generate a lot of data that you have to analyze and manage. And obviously you need bioinformaticians to do that. So yeah, I strongly believe that you need like right now there's no, I mean, you really need this multidisciplinarity 
in your team as as much as possible within your team and but also like collaborating with other people but yes that's kind of the 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 approaches that we use like trying to combine different sets of skills and not only sets of skills but also like visions and and, mm-hmm. and approaches right you you are a relatively young group leader what have been the most striking challenges when you have been working on building up your team okay since i started uh, being a, yeah well i like how you say it relatively <laughs> um i guess like the most uh, for me the, the 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 key part is Obviously, the science has to be solid and you need to get your projects and so on. But like, I guess managing the people is the most important part of the of being a PI. Like for me, at least, I mean, working with people that I like and that are compatible because, I mean, we spend quite a lot of time there. And uh, especially, I mean, obviously, we are not working on science to, to become rich, right? So, <laughs> so what you really want to enjoy your work, right? So for me, it's key to work with people that I have fun with and um, that selecting that people, right? And, and making sure that they are also compatible with each other and that everybody is having fun while doing science. It's, for me, is the most important part of being a PI, I would say. And then also, obviously, trying to inspire people and doing good science, if possible, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, but for me, that's been the, the part of the work that I spend the most time thinking about is like this like building a team that it's fun to work with and that, that, that people that are happy working on, on this field yeah we have a lot of young researchers listening to podcasts and especially also within our center you know we're building hopefully the next generation of AMR scientists and sometimes in the conversations some things that they start to be worried about or they start thinking when they're by the end of the PhD thinking in next postdoc steps is how do you differentiate yourself how do you find the niche area where you think Work is needed, but your skills are maybe being kind of ready for it, but you are going to develop them more. And they get a lot of thoughts about these kind of things because AMR is so big, it's so broad, but then they get trained in a very small niche area. And you're thinking, of course, it's needed to expand and build these multidisciplinary teams. How do you face that? Well, for me, um, ever since I started doing science yeah, I've been working on antimicrobial resistance and plasmids. So for me, it was quite obvious. And it was a, a field, There's there are quite a lot of plasmid biologists, but there was a field in which there was definitely room for more people to, mm-hmm. to work there. Sometimes it can be hard, especially for people that have been doing a postdoc in a particular subject, but then they want to follow up on, as a PI and move on to maybe not, not to overlap what they were doing during their their postdoc and do a new thing i guess that how, i mean i i see how can that be um difficult but i still think like like what you guys are doing here with this center like having a multidisciplinary um perspective really helps a lot right so um yeah get exposed to different things as you're growing yes in and then at the end of the day you have to follow your gut. I mean, you have to to do what you are the most excited about, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. otherwise, is um, I mean, I can see how sometimes there is a fine line, uh, no, between you want to do a new thing, but at the same time you want to 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 use what you have or your, your set skill and and keep working on what you are kind of more familiar with. 
there's no a perfect uh, answer for that, but all the rest being equal, you have to do what you're excited about, I guess. I mean, that's the only thing <laughs> I can think of. I mean, you need to, to follow your, your gut and work on what you you what you really like, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of funny that you say follow your gut because I think when you follow your gut, you're actually following your bacteria, what your bacteria <laughs> want, right? Like from your gut. Yeah, so, yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. They will yeah. tell you where to go. So I would like to move now a little bit from from the work and that you're doing now and that you've done in the past and then having a perspective on the future a little bit. So now that you've been established for a few years, you have established your line of work, you have had contact with different disciplines and collaborations and the bigger world of AMR and it's all its trials and tribulations. Is there some sort of wish list? Is there something that you would like to see more of or something that you are hopeful that would be better in the future? As in in the field, you mean, or like... Uh, could yeah. be in your particular field yeah. or it could be something that you actually have encountered and you see a need for. We're trying to build yeah. a wish list, so at some point when a philanthropist <laughs> that has millions upon millions, okay. we can just like okay, ask for these things. Well, that's a good strategy, I guess. Um, well, I think if one thing that I w- would wish for is, is ways to integrate fields. I mean, for example, we are we work on antimicrobial resistance, and we are like plasmid biologists, right? So we work with plasmids and antimicrobial resistance. And then there are people working on other mobile genetic elements such as phages, so there are phage biologists, right? And there are people working on, I don't know, so you have, you know, like niche conference for each mm-hmm. thing, but at the end of the day, everything is super interconnected, right? So I would like to find ways to um, to make these connections between fields in a way that is meaningful for the scientists in the different fields. I don't know if it's just like, doing conferences in which different disciplines meet together or just like by setting money for projects in which these different people could collaborate, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but sometimes yeah, I feel that like there is a need of expanding or, or because it's, as you said, antimicrobial resistance or, or mobile genetic elements or horizontal gene transfer in bacteria or whatever thing we are kind of studying is kind of artificially divided by some historical constraints mm-hmm. in which this is a field and this is a different field, even if they are obviously overlapping, right? And those contingencies, I think, are difficult to overcome sometimes. So so, so I, I would really like for a way to, I mean, to find a way or to kind of merge or get these different disciplines exposed to, to one another and, mm-hmm. and, and try to, um, yeah, set some bridges in between fields, right? Other than that, obviously, in the field of antimicrobial resistance, the kind of the, the hope we all have is to try uh, to try and find new solutions, right? To try and find new intervention strategies, new molecules, new approaches that help us to um, solve the antimicrobial resistance crisis that we are currently facing. And in that uh, regard, well, ideally, uh, we will find new ways to, to counteract resistant bacteria, but probably... It would be in a way that we are not even suspecting right now, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I think that the good thing is that a lot of different people are exploring a lot of different approaches. And uh, it's difficult to make predictions, but 
I'm sure the solutions will come up, but probably in ways that we are not really expecting yet. Yeah, I mean, if you make the parallel a little bit with bacterial evolution and us looking for new solutions, it's a bit of a numbers game. If you have a lot of people out there trying a lot of different things, majority are going to be sampled, they won't work, they won't go anywhere, but maybe we can find the one or these few things that can can help us somehow. And I I agree with you. We don't really know how the future is going to look like, right? And I think history has told us that, that the solutions that will be used for certain problems, maybe 20 years ago, we couldn't even imagine that they would exist, right? And it's difficult to to envision that innovation happening, but somehow it has always happened, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the thing. I mean, we need to... People thinking about the problem, looking for solution, different solutions for the problem, understanding the real roots of this problem. And and again, multidisciplinarity here is key because there are so many aspects for this particular problem of antimicrobial resistance that you need to, uh, yeah, obviously you need microbiology and bacteriology and (laughs) genetics, but you need many other things. You need social sciences, you need psychology, you need many other things, many other players contributing to solve the problem. And as you said, solutions are are difficult to predict. But obviously, the the more people you have working on the problem and the more different aspects being covered, the more probably is for a solution to come up. Mm -hmm, For sure. And talking on the topic of understanding and this multidisciplinary aspect, before we sign off, we'd like to ask all our guests here that come from different disciplines, if there is anything in particular about their field that tends to be misunderstood by people working in other fields, by people you have encountered, talked to, or tried to explain why you work and the importance of your field, is there anything yeah. there that gets to be misconstrued and it would be much better if everyone would understand it? Yeah, I, I think some of the um, some of the concepts that come from evolutionary biology sometimes are a bit... <laughs> so there's a bit of a gap no, between clinical microbiologists and people working on, on the evolutionary biology aspects of the evolution of antimicrobial resistance. And you can see that definitely no, in conferences. Uh, when you go to clinical microbiology conferences, they, I mean, uh, sometimes some of the concepts, such as fitness, right, are, I don't know, difficult to understand or, or, we, or we haven't done a good enough job explaining them, right? But these kind of things are, are the ones that are important. I mean, we really need for, uh, yeah, for clinical microbiologists to understand how important that the bacterial fitness is for the evolution of antimicrobial resistance. No, it's not all about the resistance level that that particular gene or mechanism can confer, but there are other aspects that will influence the spread and the population biology of those resistant bacteria in the hospital, in the gut microbiota, that we need to understand and that for which we need to apply the concepts of coming from population biology and evolutionary biology. Yeah, the the interaction between fields would be much easier if all these concepts were shared somehow in the community, right? And I think that's something that, well, obviously we have to, it's our responsibility for for these so-called fields, which at the end of the day is kind of, we're all working on, on antimicrobial resistance, right? That we can really have the same conversations and understand each other and, and therefore collaborate to make the situation better, right? So yeah, that's mm-hmm. something that I think we have to improve. Great. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think communications is important. Try to find a way to find common ground and and explain these difficult concepts. And I agree with you. Everything that has to do kind of with pure hardcore evolution and and the parameters that play a role in the evolution that then it will play a role in 
AMR, antimicrobial resistance, and being able to treat an infection or not, maybe it would be good if they would be integrated into the understanding of the whole concept and topic, right? That's great, Alvaro. Uh, we're almost running out of time of our half an hour together, but it was great to have you here to learn about your topic and your inspiration and your motivation to to bring something new into this field. And I I really, really enjoy what you're doing. I love evolution to my core of all sorts. I think nothing makes sense in this life on, if it's not under the light of evolution, like uh, it was said a long time ago. And I think antimicrobial resistance in particular, is it's essential that we understand how things are evolving are, are dynamically happening in both the environment the animals and the clinics as well obviously so i wish you the best on the years forward and i'm looking forward to see what comes out of your lab thank you so much well thank you very much for the invitation i, I, I really enjoyed talking to you too and uh, this is i mean you're doing a great job here thank you so much bye bye Welcome back from this very Spanish interview. Helene, <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to this uh, November episode as well. Thank you. With very November time that we have. Yes. Very dark through mm-hmm. the windows, mm-hmm. very wet <gasps> and very cold. A lot of rain. I can imagine that Alvaro experienced a big difference when coming here to Sweden. <laughs> Especially back then, which was the beginning of October. It was still pretty hot in Spain. And mm-hmm. then we invited him here. It was kind of funny because some colleagues and me, we were saying... I hope it doesn't ha- happen like it happened to, I think it was Descartes, that mm-hmm. he came to Uppsala and then he got pneumonia. He went back to France and then he died. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> I hope he's... I'm not sure if it was Descartes. I think so. I, mm-hmm. I think we got that story told to us mm-hmm. when we visited the main building of the university. Oh, yo, yo, I So hope. we didn't want to tell Alvaro. <laughs> no, I hope he's fine and doing good yes, back no, in he's, Spain. <laughs> he's very, he just told me that he reviewed the interview. And it was oh, good. nice, nice. Okay, good, good. <laughs> Perfect. So... What do you think of the interview? I really enjoyed it. And I mean, it's always, I think, plasmids and genetic, uh, mobile genetic elements are fascinating. I know that it's very much down your lane. Yes. (laughs) And evolution. (laughs) And evolution, yes. And I have done some, dipped my toes into some evolution stuff as well. So it's it's, uh, very, and I think he was so inspiring in the way he talked and described his research as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing him speak about it. And you had a great dynamic, both of you going. I was very happy to finally meet him in person Mm -hmm. because I actually remember back in my PhD, some of the first projects I worked with, which in the end they didn't really end up uh, amounting to almost anything, but they were about plasmids. And he was back then, I think he may be finishing his PhD or already Mm -hmm. on his, probably already on his postdoc. Ah. And I read a couple of papers with him as a main author, I was like, oh, the, the things they're doing with plasmids is quite cool. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the years passed and I was like, oh, well, we needed to bring a Spanish scientist yeah. to Sweden mm-hmm. through the association I volunteer at. And I was like, I think Alvaro would be a very good person mm-hmm. to talk about antibiotic resistance. And yeah, there there he came and yeah. talked about antibiotic resistance. Yes. <laughs> And I mean, as you said, he's quite a young PI. That was mm-hmm. something that you discussed. Mm-hmm. And I think his way of looking at his group was also very inspiring in terms of he was really focusing on getting a good, like everyone should be working great together and they should have fun together. And also the thing with how do you find your niche? That is something I think about as a young scientist mm-hmm. or as a new scientist. And to follow, to to actually follow your gut and think about what makes you excited. I think that was very inspiring. Yeah, I guess it's a... It's a... He 
it can be a very tiresome career. And if mm. you don't have something else than just, you know, the day-to-day that drives you forward, mm. which is, you know, that something you really enjoy and passionate about. Mm. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And having that drive, following your gut, plus being in an environment where you're having fun, mm-hmm. which is what he kind of brought to the table yeah. that he's trying to build up with his group. Mm. I think that's pretty important. Yeah. And I'm happy there is young people that... You know, apart from doing good science, which obviously yes, is key, yes. but also have in mind all these other aspects of building a group. Mm, absolutely. There was also a lot of aspects to understanding plasmids that I didn't haven't really thought about. Mm-hmm. So like when he talked about how plasmids actually affect bacteria, like physically and how you could potentially target those things mm-hmm. like the expression of a certain protein that becomes essential and how you could like try to hit that and by that only focus on bacteria that expresses the plasmid that I think was very fascinating. There is actually a, a different perspective on it and, yeah. and yeah how plasmids affect the physiology and the mm-hmm. metabolism mm-hmm. and harnessing that change mm-hmm. yeah it's something that maybe haven't been thought about so much or talked no, about uh, as I a strategy. for sure haven't. So yeah. that was very new yeah, to that's me. That's pretty cool. Talking about plasmids, mm-hmm. there were a couple of concepts that were thrown around on the interview mm-hmm. which maybe some of you out there haven't really been so familiar with. Mm-hmm. One of them is conjugation. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people know what conjugation mm-hmm. is, but I think it's good that we maybe just briefly go through yeah, it. Yeah. So conjugation happens when a bacteria that is containing a plasmid that is conjugative, so mm-hmm. it has this capability, creates a pillus, a bridge that can connect to another bacteria and then transfer a copy of that plasmid through that bridge into the new cell. So this allows what is the horizontal transfer of these mobile genetic elements Mm. like it could be the plasmids. Mm. So when we say conjugation, we are saying somehow bacterial sex. Yeah. Even though Mm. it's not exactly the same, but yeah, it would be this reproduction of the plasmids through. (laughs) That's how they like share it with each other. Yeah. Yes. Um, And this uh, horizontal transfer amplifies a lot the transfer of Mm. resistance Mm. genes because now you are not only dependent on the mother-daughter transfer Mm. through duplication and replication of the bacteria, but also it can go horizontally to other bacteria. Exactly. And there, there's a lot of the issues with uh, resistance coming up because Mm. it can be shared very quickly around. Mm. And I mean, that's what you can see like in outbreaks in hospitals and stuff when... When you have patients that are close to each other and you have bacteria spreading resistance genes. Yeah, and also, as uh, Alvaro was saying, the key of why plasmids are also so important for the spread and development and evolution of resistance is because they can have a lot of these resistant determinants at the same time in one of these Mm -hmm. elements that can then move horizontally across different bacteria and different yeah, species. they tend to collect them like Pokemon cards. <laughs> That's <laughs> a very know? good analogy. Actually, I love that. It's like, let's get them all. Yeah, all those genes, gotta catch right? them all. All the resistance genes. Yeah, no. So, yeah, no, but it was, I, I, I really enjoyed this interview. It was super interesting. I also liked how you, how you pointed out that, now, now I don't think that his science is basic because I think it's very fascinating, but the thing you said about Answering the basic questions is the key for further understanding. I think that is something that is very important to remember mm-hmm. because you want to be do all the hot, new, flashy things. 
of course, but if we don't understand the basic key concepts, we have nothing to build on, really. And what we were saying also in the interview, to me, it's pretty enlightening, which is we don't really know what's coming after. Mm -hmm. Those innovations that might be life changes, civilization changes, mm -hmm. might be based on knowledge that we still don't have yet. Yeah, yeah for sure. And that can be knowledge about how very... Uh, underlying things are working, mm. you know, and I don't want to call them basic. And I think no, I yeah. get upset when people or in general, basic is seen as a negative yeah, uh, connotation agree. to whatever you put it. Uh, you are so basic, right? Mm -hmm. I think it goes from that. But, you know, basic research, it just means you are understanding the underlying mm. main concepts in which a lot of other things build up mm. from. So in a sense, you could say mathematics are basics because mm -hmm. everything is kind of based on mathematics. Yeah, exactly. Or physics sure. or the interaction between molecules, all those things building each other. So there is something underneath. Mm. And then mm. understanding that, I think, is really important in order to gather more knowledge and to be able to in the future come up with things we cannot even think about right yeah. now. Maybe we need to take back the term basic. It shouldn't be something... Powerful. Exactly. It's powerful and it's very, very necessary. And as I said, I don't think there's anything basic with his research at all. I think it's super fascinating. It's super cool. Basic can be fascinating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can yeah, say that. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's <laughs> agree on that. That's great. Well, yeah, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I'm very happy that you also took some things home from mm -hmm. the interview and I hope that you guys are home. Did the same. Yes. And now, I guess we can move on to the news. And yes. This month, the news are slightly different of the things uh, that we're bringing generally. Mm -hmm. I guess we're going to focus a lot on communications yes. this time. It's the communications section now. Yeah. See you there. Yay. Welcome to the news section. And as we said, we're going to talk about communications today. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start with your paper, Ellen. What did you read this month? This month, I read a paper named Existing Terminology Related to Antimicrobial Resistance Fails to Evoke Risk Perceptions and Be Remembered. And this was published in Communications Medicines, the 25th of October. That's a pretty interesting title. That is a very interesting title. And it's very different from what I usually read. But which is it, nice. Sometimes. Which was very nice. <laughs> the whole scenario around this paper is the fact that we have seen that it's hard to communicate about AMR to the public. Mm -hmm. Many attempts have been made, but the results haven't really been what we want them to be. So in this paper, they have been looking into if it could be due to the AMR terminology. Mm -hmm. So the words we use to describe AMR. And it has been uh, suggested before that the AMR terminology is very inconsistent, abstract, and hard to pronounce. Mm -hmm, for mm, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, and I must say that I agree on that. <laughs> and they have been looking into more specifically the term antimicrobial resistance and seeing that it's inconsistently used, it's difficult to pronounce, and it's very abstract. And I mean, especially if you compare it to something like heart disease, mm -hmm. it's very straightforward. You, you mm. visualize a heart exactly. and you visualize being sick mm -hmm. and having a disease and that kind of evokes some sort of understanding of exactly. it. Exactly. Right? And it, it and some kind of feeling and some kind of risk. Because mm -hmm. you have heart that is important and then you have disease that is something bad, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Antimicrobial resistance, a bit harder to grasp. You really need to know what antimicrobial means and what resistant means and put it together and understand the consequences before you can assess how risky 
it is or it's not. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So what they have done in this paper is that they have made two surveys. They had one US base that had 237 participants and one UK base that had 924 participants. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a lot of people that have answered the survey. They have done this using online platforms. And I want to say that the people who participated got paid. They got a little bit of a commission for Mm -hmm. doing this. And they tested six AMR-related terms. We have AMR. We have antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance, superbugs, bacterial resistance, and drug-resistant infections. Mm Mm-hmm. So these are, the, as they say, the, I think it's kind of fun when they talk about inconsistently used. Yes, we have these six terms that we all just throw around. Interchangeably, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they took these six terms and they mixed them with 34 different healthcare related terms. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted to evaluate what kind of risk association people made with these terms. Mm-hmm. So they scored them on a scale of one to seven based mm-hmm. on what risk they felt about the term. And they also did a memorability test. Mm-hmm. So after the risk assignment, they had 80 healthcare-related terms, 40 of which they have already seen in the risk assessment and 40 new ones. And then the participant had to say, did this term, was that a part of the risk assessment? Like, have you seen this before exactly. in the study? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. do you remember this or not? And what they saw when it comes to word effectiveness, which was evaluated using the risk assessment, was that all six AMR terms scored very low. (laughs) (laughs) So it didn't evoke any risk I mean, we're laughing, but it's not really something to laugh about because Uh, we're really not doing something well. No, no, I I know, but it's... it's, uh, The drug-resistant infection scored the best out of the six. Mm -hmm. And AMR... Score the worst. It was actually second to last of all 40 terms. Now I have to kind of apologize for the title of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so at the top, they had cancer and Ebola. So that was very like risk mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inducing in people. Mm-hmm. Then they looked at memorability and it's not better there. Um, no. Antibiotic resistant scored the best uh-huh. and it was in the middle somewhere. But then we have AMR that was still the worst. This time it was third to last. Mm-hmm. And at the top, we had diarrhea and AIDS. Okay, as the most memorable. Me- most memorable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And what is interesting is that in the paper, they also said that previous studies has thought that drug-resistant infections should be the best one to use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it yeah. scored high when it came to the risk, but it scored very low when it comes to memorability. All right. So it, it kind of gets the point across that it's something that might affect you and mm-hmm. badly, mm-hmm. but... It's not so easy for you to remember it exactly. when you are exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, But what they saw that was best when you looked at both things was antibiotic resistance. In general. Yeah. yeah so we're coming back to the to, to yeah. the to the OG term, yeah. antibiotic yeah. resistance. You remember when the Antimicrobial Awareness Week was actually called Antibiotic Awareness Week? You probably uh, were very young. Yeah, no. <laughs> they I'm... changed it some years mm-hmm. ago because they wanted to make it more inclusive mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. because, you know, antibiotic resistance is not everything. No, and we also no. have mm-hmm. fungal and we have mm-hmm. viral and we have parasitics, so we changed mm-hmm. to antimicrobial awareness week. Well, I guess we this kind of research is telling us maybe we're not going the right direction. No, exactly. It hasn't catched on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that is what they 
saw. They also did some regression analysis where they tested this drug-resistant infection term and antibiotic-resistant term, and they run it against some parameters. This is a bit complex. It's very statistics. If you want to know more, read the paper. Mm-hmm. But the conclusions that they made uh, is that we it's an urgent need to rename rather than reframe AMR in the public health domain. Mm-hmm. So that is the main conclusion like a, from this. That's like a yeah. strong statement. Yes, we need to identify terms that are concrete, familiar, easy to process and pronounce. All right. And this is to increase the risk perception in lay populations. And also memorability of the yeah, terms yeah. and like to be familiar with it. Mm. I also wonder, I'm not sure if they included that in the study, but because you were mentioning some things that I catch on now and I did also skim through the paper, mm-hmm. that Ebola mm-hmm. was related with a lot of risk perception Mm -hmm, and AIDS was related with a lot of memorability Mm -hmm. scores. And I wonder how much different health crises around the world and the presentation of them in the media is Mm. affecting how memorable something is and how risky it is perceived as to be. Because obviously, you know, Mm. Ebola is risky when you get the disease, but the amount of prevalence of the disease is very low mm, but mm. when there is an outbreak it the high mortality is something that makes it mm. to be super scary and mm. um, with aids we had had a history of being so exposed mm. to the aids term mm. that to me it's logical right that you are going to remember it easier yeah. mm, mm. because because of that mm. part so mm. i don't know maybe this is not part of the study but i feel like i i wonder like how how can we measure how much these things play a mm. role into how much someone remembers something mm. or can assess the risk for it. So mm. with this, what I mean is like, what is the role of the media and yeah. what people are exposed to? Absolutely. But I agree, obviously, we're not really doing a very good job on no. using the terms and we are being a bit flaky and a bit like inconsistent. Yeah, and- because I think that is a problem as well, right? That there is so many different terms. In this study, they had six. I mean... And these are the six more kind of used but yeah. Yeah, in different contexts yeah. and and I know that there are also some connotations from the different ones like superbugs it includes mm. some war type of like yeah yeah, yeah exactly like superheroes mm, mm. I don't know and you're talking about like fighting and resisting mm, and mm, mm. it is very complex <laughs> it's super complex and I mean this kind of science is also very complex it was very interesting just reading the paper and see the mythology that they they use and how they do it and how they evaluate like linguistic qualities in different words and so it was super fascinating yeah it's like Mm. you you realize you know you can also do research on linguistics in a sense and on risk perceptions Mm. and i have heard a lot of the criticism to this type of research Mm. is Mm. also that it's a lot based on self-perception and Mm. self-reporting but there has to be some value to how people feel about things and we should be able to also measure it and i think papers like this it tells us something you know if you consistently get the results and i think there was a lot of consensus between the two studies that they're actually done in very different populations which is the us and the uk what is similar is that they are english speaking yeah and but there are um, things where they might actually also differ and still I think the results were pretty robust. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's something there. Yeah, for sure. So you think we should change the name of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> now we need to start thinking but about it. I think the it. AMR studio is pretty 
memorable. Yeah, I think so, at least. But and we don't own. need to evoke any risk. No, <laughs> we might also be a little bit biased. And also know. our audience is pretty uh, niche and already yeah. kind of familiar with the term, yeah. so yeah. M- maybe mm. it's not exactly the same. Yeah. Mm. But it is true that uh, it's always funny when you go to a conference and there is like this keynote speech given by someone that is not on the field, like mm. let's say a politician or someone from a royal family mm. or something like mm. that and then you can really see how the moment they have to say antimicrobial mm. they either stop and they have to put a lot of effort mm. or they say antimicrobial mm. or some sort of different yeah, yeah, yeah. expression of mm-hmm. it and then you realize yeah it's a hard yes. word yeah. to say <laughs> it's just because we say it every day we are so comfortable with it exactly but, I mean... exactly well this was great yes. Ellen. thank you so much yes um, And what do you have in store for us this month? Yes. So this month, I read a paper published just a day earlier than your paper on 24th of October on the journal BMC Research Notes with the title Co-Designing Community-Based Interventions to Tackle Antimicrobial Resistance, AMR, Mm -hmm. What to Include and Why. (gasps) And this paper is published by the consortium network called CE for AMR, which is Community Engagement for AMR, which I have to say, we have been working with them and collaborating in this autumn quite a lot because Mm -hmm. we are undergoing uh, an initiative on community engagement on antimicrobial resistance together with Antibiotics Smart Sweden and REACT, together with our center, the Upsala Antibiotic Center. And we had run already two webinars, one on general concepts of community engagement on antimicrobial resistance and um, nearby fields and another webinar now this month of October that it was on measuring and evaluating community engagement initiatives on antimicrobial resistance, antibiotic resistance, which is a notoriously difficult aspect of community engagement initiatives mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. And now in November, we're going to have a small closed workshop where all the things that came up over those two webinars are going to be discussed a bit further, trying to identify challenges and gaps and possible solutions to those challenges and gaps. And the idea is that after this autumn, we will be able to put out a report that will suggest things that seem to be potential solutions and ways of working and moving forward also the acknowledgement that community engagement is a very important way to tackle antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic resistance. And this is why I chose this article. Yes, super cool. Because we always say it, even though resistance at its core is a very biological phenomenon, the fact that a microbe will not be killed by a central antimicrobial. It's a biological process, right? Mm-hmm. But it is also a deeply social problem nowadays because the way that we have been relating to antimicrobials and to the microbes have been putting this stress and pressure on the microbes that have reacted by evolving and accumulating mm. resistance at a rates never seen before, but also in microbes that didn't need to have resistance per se, right? So we agree on that. Biological problem that is accentuated by societal issues and the way that we behave, basically. Yeah, I mean, our behavior has turned it into us. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So because the way that we behave is what is driving this accumulation of resistance, we have to address the way we behave. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, what you want is that people that would be the ones doing the behaviors understand why the behaviors need to change and then be able to change those behaviors. Mm -hmm. And 
one basis of that is also that they have the knowledge mm -hmm, about it. Mm -hmm. And another aspect is that because it is a societal issue and there is a lot of power to understand how to reduce those drivers if the communities can pinpoint and address where the weak points are and mm -hmm. where the behaviors that are driving resistance lie in their own community. So it's in a sense, the context is key mm -hmm. and it might be very different the reasons why resistance is being driven in a country, in a low middle income country, mm -hmm. or in a high income country. Mm -hmm. Being able to involve the community that is at the core of that place to understand resistance and to find what those points of change are mm. and then driving the behavioral change that will make the difference, mm -hmm. it's key. Yeah. So this community engagement, where it tries to find ways that we can do that with the communities. Mm. Mm. So this C for AMR is an international and interdisciplinary network that focuses on community engagement approaches to address AMR. The research partially includes a collaboration called COSTAR, which is evaluating the ability of community dialogue approach to tackle AMR in low and middle income countries. Mm -hmm. But they are also working with uh, community co-development of educational resources in uh, some low and middle income countries as well. And they really focus on establishing long-term connections with community members, stakeholders, gatekeepers, and policymakers, which has made that they have a lot of knowledge about those communities itself. Mm -hmm. So the work that they have done so far has allowed them to explore very in-depth the complexity around communicating about AMR at the community level mm -hmm. and in a way that can support that behavioral change Yes, from the knowledge perspective. Because in order for behavioral change to happen, it doesn't have to be only that you know that you should do something different. No. You have to have the motivation to do something mm. different, but you also have to have in place the structures and the possibility to mm. actually behave differently. So obviously, knowledge is not the only aspect of behavioral change, but it's really important. Yeah, for sure. So in this paper, what the people from CE4AMR are presenting are seven key concepts that they have found help to engage with communities mm -hmm. and give them the knowledge that they need in order to co-create, to tackle and find solutions for mm, AMR. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These seven key concepts are, I'm going to list them now and yeah. then we can talk mm -hmm, a little mm -hmm. bit about them. The seven concepts are, one, microbes are alive. Two, antimicrobials are very important medicines. Three, seek health and veterinary professional advice before using antimicrobials. Four, there are repercussions of me just using antimicrobials. Five, AMR happens to the microbes. Six, microbes, AMR, and antimicrobials move around in our environment. And seven, behavioral action against AMR requires more complex messaging than other global challenges. I think they are very good and straightforward. Yes, and I think even though this is done in the context of low and middle income countries, I think a lot of these also translate to other contexts as well, which I think yes. is very interesting. For sure. So let's start from the beginning. Microbes are alive. In many places... There is not an understanding that a microbe is the entity that creates an illness. No, exactly. So starting from the point that microbes create illnesses, one microbe can create a different illness. Mm -hmm. And there are tiny things that actually are alive. Yeah. And hence, they can also move around. So this mm. kind of connects with yeah. the, some mm -hmm. of the other key concepts. And also, once you talk about them being alive, you can also talk about them some doing good things and some doing bad things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you can connect with talking about 
we don't want to kill the ones that are actually good. No, exactly, because that is also an important thing to not create a picture of microbes being the enemy exactly. in all senses. Yes. So that's the first uh, concept. The mm-hmm. second one, with antimicrobials being important medicines, what they have seen is that this avoids the conclusion that, okay, if using antimicrobials leads to resistance, that is bad, mm-hmm. let's just stop using antimicrobials mm-hmm. because that's not really a solution anywhere, no, right? No. So then you communicate and you talk about how they're very important medicines mm-hmm. and that we need to keep their effectivity and that mm-hmm. they still work. But they also point out that in some places you cannot just use this tagline that is used a lot, which is antimicrobial safe lives, mm. because you might be also opposed by the beliefs that, you know, death is actually determined by a higher power mm. in time mm. and space and all this stuff. So focusing more about the fact that antimicrobials enhance the quality of life of both humans and animals, mm, mm. that might be a better way to go to really underlie and understrike that the antimicrobials are very important medicines mm. that we need to keep safe. Mm. But also that we should still use them, not just, but we're not supposed to misuse them. Exactly, exactly there. For the third one about seeking professional help here, they see that it's important because sadly in some communities... Um, There is this belief that antimicrobials that are sold by private pharmacies and they're more expensive are actually of better quality than the ones given out by the governmental health facilities. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to communicate in a way that gives the trust back to the health facilities mm-hmm. and that they want to go out and, and ask and seek for help before taking anything or giving anything to their animals. Mm. But of course, as we were saying, this also is based on a structural possibilities because if you are living in a place that is seven hours away from the nearest health clinic or something like that, they might not even be able to do that. No. But at least include these kind of key concepts mm. and messaging mm. when talking about that. Mm-hmm. Here they also comment that storytelling of successful stories of people going to community healthcare workers and government health facilities might be a way to go. For the fourth concept of there are repercussions to misusing the antimicrobials, here is where the concept of resistance starts coming in, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, If we mm -hmm. don't use them properly, like either we use the wrong medicine or the wrong antimicrobial for the wrong microbe, or we use them for the wrong purpose, like for uh, growth promotion or Mm. for prophylaxis, or if we don't use enough of it when we need to, then the microbes can react to that and become resistant. So here's Mm. where the resistant concept that then we won't be able to kill them anymore, Mm. it kind of comes into the play. Apparently, this tends to be understood for humans and for children, but it's a bit more difficult to understand for animal health. Maybe Uh a bit more, another ways of talking about that there might be needed. Mm, So it can be hard to connect the fact that if it happens in animals, it can also affect us as humans. Yes. (gasps) And uh, the fifth one, which I really like, which is that AMR or antimicrobial resistant happens to microbes. Because this is something that I still, I have come across a lot of people that when we talk about it, they think, oh, I am resistant to the antibiotic, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they very beautifully put it here in this paper that making an emphasis that it happens to the microbe actually increases the collective responsibility. Because now your actions won't only affect yourself Mm. in terms of, the negative consequences of resistance. But we are kind of all in this together. Mm. If you or someone takes a wrong decision regarding an antibiotic, it will not only be affecting them, but it will affect the whole community. So I really like that then having that concept and really being understood that, you know, it happens to the microbes and then the microbes move around and we are all responsible for Mm. being good 
around using antibiotics mm. and antimicrobials. I think it's really nice. Yeah, and I think this is a concept that can be for sure applied to not only low and middle income countries, but because I mean, this I see, there's a misunderstanding I see in students that I teach. Here. Yeah, so, I, I mean, think it's pretty... Yeah. Easy pretty spread out yeah, that yeah. this idea that is us that become resistant exactly. and I think it has to do because terms of immunity also mm. become embedded and insulin resistance is it the same insulin resistance the same as antibiotic resistance mm-hmm. you know my mm-hmm. body is resistant to the antibiotics the same as my body might be resistant to insulin exactly. and these things are difficult so mm, yes, we need yes. to kind of put efforts in, into that mm. And then the sixth, which is about that the microbes, AMR and antimicrobials can move through our environment. They're talking, it's very useful to talk about our environment. This is everything that is around us. And it's good for people to understand that, you know, bacteria are shared. They also are shared with the environment. The environment is shared with the animals. The animals are shared with us, that everything is connected. They show in the paper very nice diagrams that can be used to talk about this and the positive or the, the benefit of people really understanding this concept is that they will be able to identify the points where they might be able to take action to stop the chain of transmission mm, of mm. the microbes or, or, or the resistance or the antimicrobial residues that mm. might put pressure and selection on the microbes. So when the community members really understand these concepts, they really can help you pinpoint where the weak spots might be mm. on on behaviors around this. And then seven, last but not least, which is this idea that AMR needs much more complex messaging than some other global challenges, like it could be climate change, uh, has to do a lot with the non-linearity of the concepts. In AMR, most of the time, you cannot just talk about one cause that has a consequence, Mm -hmm. but it's much more complex Mm. because you have underlying concepts in it and you need to understand a lot of the moving parts in order to make the main conclusion Mm. of of a particular messaging. And that makes it even more difficult to talk about it, to communicate about it, to teach about it, people to understand about it. So you need to have very well tailored and bespoke approaches to community engagement when it comes to AMR versus with other global challenges. Mm. So that's what they come to to say here. And I have to say, I really love the work that C4 AMR is doing. I think we could even think about how to bring to other places in the world the these community engagement approaches yeah. that mm. are being developed in countries like they're working in Bangladesh and Nepal and mm. some other uh, Southeast Asian countries. And I think it's wonderful because I do think there is a lot of power in the community. Yes, I agree. In thinking about it, in finding why things are the way they mm. are, in finding possible solutions that the community are the ones that really understand why do they mm. act the way they act, why do they behave the way they behave. Mm. And I think you just need to give them the tools in order mm, yes. for them to work with it. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the whole thing of knowledge is power. Knowing yeah. <laughs> is when you can do something and and explaining it in a way. And I mean, that com- comes back a little bit to the paper that I talked about as well, how how we can communicate in a way that people understand, because it's when people understand that they can take action yes. and be a part of the solution. And we need everyone on board for this to work. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. I have to say that we are actually working on a special episode for the World Antimicrobial Awareness Week that is going to be on community engagement Mm -hmm. because it's going to be within the context of this 
autumn series of activities on community mm-hmm. engagement on uh, antibiotic resistance. So we are going to be working very hard for that episode that it will come up during the Antimicrobial Awareness Week. So if you like what we talked about it in this episode, really stay tuned for that special episode coming up. Yes, absolutely. Great. Well, with this, Elin, next time we are in a regular episode, <gasps> I think your guest, house guest is going to be already taking up their spot. Yes. <laughs> Yes, then I will be, my belly will be a little bit smaller, but my life will be a little bit more hectic. And fuller. And fuller, yes, for sure. (laughs) I really, really wish you the best on the next weeks coming forward. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to meet your little bundle of joy when it comes to this earth. (laughs) Yeah, me too, me too. Okay, right, everybody, I'll see you on the World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. Absolutely. Take care, bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.